Friends, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. Today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Sound familiar? Should. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, for though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. For the things that are unseen, like that weight, are eternal. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Church, let us pray. Jesus, we have come here for one reason, that we may gather and expounding of your word. May we be formed into that image that Paul talked about, into your likeness, Jesus. Will we walk out of here a little more looking like you? And whatever it takes to do that, Jesus, do it. We need it. We want it. For our good, for your glory, Lord. We ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. things like no pain, no gain. If you want the comfort of Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 
Friends, true love is unrelenting and transformational. That says it all. <laughs> and empowered to defeat discouragement because discouragement so, seemly, so often and so seemingly robs us of the power we have in Jesus. Friends, this is where we have been. And if any even all of these sermons have really struck a chord in your heart, go back and watch them. We don't just live stream for a reason. We want to leave that out there for you so that you can chew on this and let God use it to form you and to form others through you. Because these are big, heavy things we're talking about. If you haven't caught on by yet, 2 Corinthians is not a light book. <laughs> it really isn't, but it's a powerful book. It's one full of God's spirit for God's people. Today, friends, we're going to be looking at this. That to be unshakable, to actually not be shaken like our Jesus was and is and continues to be, we need a total perspective change. How many of you in this room wear contacts or glasses? A lot of us. You understand the importance of going to the doctor for your daily eye check cups. Hopefully you do. You probably have heard a billion times about how eating carrots has vitamin A and that'll help you with your eyesight. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. Google it. But all of us can understand, especially those of us who have contacts or glasses or have a LASIK surgery or anything like that, can understand waking up one day and looking at the world and not it, and have it not being looked the same. For me, it was late elementary school into early middle school where I needed glasses. Because I can remember one day waking up and the world was just fuzzy. The world wasn't clear anymore. The world didn't make sense. I couldn't understand the world through my eyesight and the world never understood me, I always felt like. <laughs> well, be honest. We needed, I needed a perspective change. Once I put on those contacts or I put on those glasses, not only did I see everything again, I saw it in a new light. Especially because when I took off my glasses, I saw how I really looked at the world outside of the thing that gave me a perspective change. Friends, for us to be unshaken, we need a very holy perspective change. And that's what Paul gives us in this passage this morning. The three things our perspective needs to change on are value, our suffering, and the present and the future. You ready? What is the most valuable thing that you own? Children. No, it's good. What's the most valuable thing that you own? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's property. Maybe it's a material possession of some sort. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's all of the above. These are very similar questions, but they seem to ask the same thing on the surface. What's the most valuable thing that you own versus what's the most valuable thing in your life? Right? They might be the same answer. They may not be the same answer. A sermon more than a year ago, maybe a year and a half at this point, I talked about how I have a Pokemon card in my basement that's probably worth anywhere between five dollars and $10,000, depending on what condition it's in. Don't go to my basement. It's mine. <laughs> that's the most valuable thing that I own. That's not the most valuable thing in my life. Right? Similar on the surface, but yet very different. Value is something that we have a lot of conversation about in our culture. You hear things about saying, like, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Right? It's just another way of saying you're going to find value in it based upon how you see it, right? 
The only reason anything in our culture and in our economy has value is because we decided it has value, right? If we decided it has value. That's how economics works. If the world woke up one day and decided this isn't worth it, guess what? It's not worth it anymore. That applies to every material possession or resource we can encounter, except one thing, or two things, I guess. God and his people. That's why we talk about identity so much. So we talk about how your value is given to you by the one who made you, because he made you, so he knows what he's talking about. Right? In our passage, friends, Paul opens up talking about this idea of treasure. For any of you who knows the, uh, I think it's the Bruno Mars song, right? Treasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about that as I've been studying this passage all week. <laughs> as I've been reading this, Bruno Mars's head a song is in my head as I'm reading, treasure, right? <laughs> it's a good song. <laughs> It's a wedding dance song, so. We started at verse 7 this morning, but I'm going to jump back just a bit for you to 5 and 6 to help us understand 7. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of God, friends, is something in the Bible that is without peer. There's nothing like it. God does not just share his glory with anybody. In fact, he doesn't share it with anybody. But the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay. So what is that treasure, friends? It's that glory of God, whom he has deemed so fit to be carried around in jars of clay. You would never put this in this. You wouldn't. One of these, one little coin, is worth more than all of the world's clay jars put together times a billion. It's worth infinitely more. And yet that's what Paul says we have, this infinite treasure of the glory of God in jars of clay. That contrast should strike you. That difference in value should strike you because one seems so insurmountably awesome and I want it and I can't even begin to fully understand how valuable that is versus I can sneeze on that and that breaks. I can just go doop and it's shattered in a million pieces and nobody will bat an eye because clay is pretty much everywhere on the planet. You can just make another one. Friends, our perspective on value, maybe as individuals, but certainly as a culture, is based upon this idea. The ways of the world will give me my heart's greatest desires. We may not say it this way, but we certainly act this way. All of us have pockets in our lives where we fully believe the lie that says, what I really want will not be found in Jesus. It will be found out there. It will. I'm convinced of it because everyone else has found it out there. I have all of these infinite examples of how people have long searched for their desires, the deep desires of their heart to be fulfilled and satisfied, which is something we all want. And look, they all found it out there. So I will too, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Ecclesiastes 2 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it is King Solomon himself writing to us. King Solomon, who the Bible testifies, was the wisest human who has ever lived. The only one who beats him, and that's Jesus, who is both human and God, so kind of doesn't count. 
He was the wisest human who ever lived. Those are God's words about Solomon. And Solomon says, I accrued everything that you can possibly imagine. Everything that you can possibly imagine. Land, I own it. Vineyards, I owned it. I had so much money and such a workforce, he literally changed the topography of the nation of Israel. Think about that for a second. How much money do you have to have to see a desert and go, I want a forest? And you build it. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of power. And Solomon had it. He had slaves, he had servants, he had concubines, he had all the wives he could imagine. Not good, but different sermon, different day. <laughs> but he had it all. In the latter parts of this section of Ecclesiastes 2, it says that he has wisdom and knowledge, something that all of us, all of humanity in some way, shape, or form is pursuing. We don't want to be stupid. We want to be knowledgeable. We want to be people who are wise and live wisely and make right decisions. Solomon had that. And this is what Solomon says himself. Worthless. Useless. Vapor. <sighs> Gone. What? The man who had enough money to literally change topography said it was a waste of time. If you want a more modern example of this, this is an HBO documentary that came out in 2020 called The Weight of Gold, narrated by the man on the screen, Michael Phelps, the most decorated gold medal Olympian and the most decorated Olympian ever. So he's kind of qualified to talk about the Olympics. And this documentary, friends, is, I quote, a look at the connection between elite athleticism and psychological turmoil where him and a bunch of other Olympians, like Sean White, the snowboarder, if you know who that is, talk about how they have to give everything to even get a shot at getting gold. And every single person on this documentary testifies to this reality. It wasn't worth it. This is the man who's won more gold than anyone ever, saying, not worth it. Yeah, <laughs> that is a mic drop moment. I don't have to say it. They said it. Go watch it. It's really good. What does that strike in our hearts when the people who pursue what many of us consider to be the pinnacle of an achievement in this human life decide it wasn't worth it? That's why if you ever decide to look up the suicide rates, for Olympics, for the Olympians, it's striking. It's very striking. Friends, this perspective change that we're talking about, to be unshakable, as it regards to our value, what is that shift that has to happen? Right, because we said, to be unshakable calls for this holy perspective change. What is the change as it regards to our value? It's this idea that there's one treasure. There's one. It's Jesus. There is but one. The glory of God that we talked about earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The Apostle John is the one who testifies in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He skipped down to verse 14, and he says, We have seen the glory of God as of the only Son. John testifies, the glory of God, just like Paul does in 2 Corinthians, is seen and found in Jesus. He says it again in Colossians 1.19, where he says that the fullness of God was pleased, not had to, was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. 
This glory, this treasure has a name. It is a person. It is not a bank account figure. It is not something I put and leave in my basement until it accumulates enough money and hopefully pays for my college's uh, debt. (laughs) It is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is an itinerant, which means traveling, pastor in the South from 1800s named Jacob Knapp, K-N-A-P-P. And in 1845, he accumulates all these different hymns that for the first time in history were published. So he didn't write all of these hymns, but he gathered them all together, and for the first time, they're now on paper. He has a hymn that most of us know, and it's Give Me Jesus. We have that on paper because of this man. And I love that hymn because it gets at the heart of the matter. You can have all of this world. Give me Jesus. Give him to me. Because if I have that, I have everything I need and everything I want. Don't miss that. Yes, I have everything I need, and I actually have everything I want when you give me Jesus. He is the treasure, friends. We cannot miss this. Matthew 9 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You know who's already there? Jesus. (laughs) Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is Jesus speaking about this idea of treasure. But Jesus again speaks about this idea just 10 chapters later in the book of Matthew when he says, for what does it profit a man or a woman should they gain the whole world? You know who offered the whole world to Jesus? Satan. Temptation in the wilderness. You think that correlation is accidental? What does a man or woman profit if they should gain the whole world but lose their soul? Friends, that is a value issue. Because you have failed to understand in that moment that you are giving away everything for nothing. Nothing. Go back to Matthew 6. You know what happens to it all? It rusts and rots. It doesn't even last. It's dying as you receive it. It's nothing. But we have Jesus. Friends, for us to be unshakable calls for this perspective change. That this is important, but it will not last. He is infinitely more important, and he will last forever, and there's no greater treasure than him, which is why we become unshakable when we realize, when I lose something, I've lost nothing. When I lose something, I've actually lost nothing of value because I have the thing that all value is based upon, Jesus. If I have the bottom denominator, the rest infinitely and eternally does not matter. Now hear me, you're tempted to say, okay, well, if I get into a car accident and I lose my car, I should just be like, eh, I've lost nothing of value. That's not what I'm saying here, friends. I'm not saying the things that God gives us in our life aren't important and that we are to steward them well. What I am saying this, internally and for eternity, there is a perspective change that needs to happen. There is a perspective change that needs to happen in us that says, I will hold on to this treasure. Because in light of him, Nothing else has value. Nothing. So, friends, what do you value? It's a hard question, but it's one that we need to ask. The second perspective shift that we need is suffering. 
Our view on suffering is usually either dismissive or damaging. It's dismissive in this sense. Uh, this too shall pass. This too shall pass, which is a faulty view, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's also dismissive of where we're at in life. This too shall pass. It could also be dismissive in the sense of, uh, man, God, why aren't you doing something about it? Which entirely is dismissive of God, insinuating he's not doing something about it. But it could also be damaging, where we tell ourselves, I deserve this suffering. I deserve the pain that has come my way. But there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So how does that work? Why am I so susceptible to believing that lie? But it's also damaging when we say, you haven't gotten me out of this, so you're not good. Like we've said once from this pulpit before, that's, that's a character assassination of God, claiming for him to be something that he actually is. Friends, for many of us, our view on suffering is dismissive or damaging, because at the end of the day, we don't like suffering. That's not a secret. It's okay, we can say that out loud. I don't want to be in pain. Nobody wants to be in pain of any kind, physical, emotional, social, spiritual, you name it. Nobody wants to be in pain. That's the common human experience. But guess what? John 16, in this life, there will be tribulation. Jesus has said it, there will be pain. You can't avoid it. You can't outrun it. You can't dump, numb it. You can't push it away. You will have pain. And that's awful to hear. It is. It is awful to reckon with the reality that we are learning to be unshakable in a world that is broken. Why are we so caught off guard sometimes when we are in pain? The world is in pain. Creation is groaning. But the change, friends, comes when we can admit our pain is either pointless or purposeful. If we're going to have pain, it needs to have a direction that it heads in. If we're going to have pain, it needs to be redeemed. If, it, if we're going to have pain, there needs to be a point. But that point, that redemption, that change, that transformation is only going to happen with Jesus or it's not happening. I want to say that again because it's really important for you to catch. All that redemption, all that transformation, the point of pain will either have a point with Jesus or it won't. It won't have a point. It will be pointless or it will be purposeful. In what way, you may ask? Paul himself, in this letter that we are reading through, experiences tremendous suffering, and he details it. He talks about how he's persecuted. He's run out of towns. Riots try to kill him. He's slandered. He's gossiped about. He gets shipwrecked later on in his life. He gets bitten by snakes. He gets stoned and attempted to be stoned multiple times. He's beaten. He's battered. He's starved. He's betrayed. He's abandoned. The man suffers everything you could possibly think of. He does. He's bankrupt half the time. He has to ask money. For, for he has to ask people for money to support the mission of God that he's on. He's alone, which is why it's always a big deal. At the end of all his letters, he talks about say hi to all these people because he misses those people. All of these different things going on in his life, and Paul says that suffering was worth it. Now, Paul either understands something we don't, or Paul needs to be on heavy medication. To be honest, what human in their, quote, right mind is ever going to come out and say, I'm so glad I suffered today. Yes! Except the apostles did. That's Acts 3, that's Acts 4, that's Acts 5. 
Except Paul did. What do they know that we don't? They walked around with Jesus. At least the apostles did. They picked up on something, even if it was after the fact. Maybe I'm not in my right mind. Maybe we aren't. Or as I've been titling this sermon so far, maybe our perspective needs to change. Because friends, Paul says these sufferings that he suffers through had a purpose so that there was death in him, but that there may be life at work in you. He is talking about the gospel. He is talking about the salvific work and knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. He is talking about the fact that he has a message that God has called him to deliver. Go back and read his story in Acts 9, the Damascus Road experience. God tells him from the beginning, they're going to suffer for my name's sake, that the Gentiles may hear, that the Gentiles who are far from God may hear. Yes, hallelujah, indeed. We know Jesus because Paul suffered. You ever put that connection together? If Paul doesn't suffer and do what he does, the gospel never makes its way all the way to here or wherever your country of origin is. It doesn't, unless people like Paul take up the mantle and say, all right, Jesus, let's do this. Also, ouch. <laughs> it suffers. It hurts. It hurts. We can say that out loud, and that's okay. But there was a holy purpose to that. Friends, how often in our lives can we be honest and admit to ourselves that you can take my time, talent, and treasures for the work of the gospel when it's convenient. You can take my time, talents, and treasures as long as I still have enough for me. You can take my time, talents, and treasures, but you can't take me. You can't take me. I will not give my life for the suffering of others so that they may live if it calls for my death. That's a lot of our heart posture sometimes, friends. We can admit that. I can admit that. My call to be a pastor has always been a very interesting one because as a pastor, I feel like the thing that all of my work needs to revolve around is what we call the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets can be understood in this. That's Jesus' words. Ever since I was 15 and had a really profound moment with the person of Jesus Christ, I have been sold out for that first part. And I have been wrestling with him about that second part since then. I'm a pastor who doesn't like to pastor people because it involves people. <laughs> I don't want to give my life that I may die so that you may have life. I don't want to. And I know a lot of you can resonate with that. We don't want to. But friends, we're called to. Otherwise, our pain is pointless. If I'm going to suffer, I might as well suffer, and somebody might as well get something out of it. And it's not just the something that they're getting out of it. They're getting Jesus, who we just talked about, is the real treasure. So it's worth dying for. But more than that, friends, there's this other lie that we believe that affects our change, our potential change, our, poten our potential perspective shift. Right? I want to be unshakable. I need to change how I see suffering. I need to change my belief and my acting out on this idea of suffering. The other lie we sometimes believe is that suffering will be the end of me. That's a half-truth, half-lie. I know a lot of times we say up here, the half-truth is just a full lie that's being masked. Yes, but for today's purposes, I'm going to split that in half just for a second. It is a half, it's half-right and it's half-wrong. 
What we really believe is suffering will be the end of me in this life, and I will be miserable, and it will be awful, and my life will be just nothing of pain. It'll be like the book of Job, where I just have boils and blisters, and everything I love gets taken away, and everyone I know dies, and I'm just, and my friends betray me, and it's just going to be awful. That's what we believe, that if suffering starts, suffering won't ever end in this life, and that it will be pointless, and it will be my undoing. Like a loose thread you find on a piece of clothing that if you just pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled, it's slowly turning back into nothing. That's what we believe suffering to be. The part that is, is right is that it will be the end of you. Because that's the point. Jesus is himself, again, the one who says, in that passage I quoted earlier, we quoted verse 26, right? For, for, what should a man gain? If, uh, what does a man profit from, right, if he gains the whole world? Two verses before that, Jesus says, if anyone shall come after me, let him deny himself or herself. Pick up your cross and follow me. There's two things about that verse I find really interesting that we seem to just glance over sometimes. We wear crosses on our necks to symbolize our faith in Jesus. The cross is an image of death. Jesus died on a Roman torture device. It's ironic that we don't want to pick up our crosses. He did. That's the whole point of our faith. But more than that, it's the follow me part. We did a whole sermon series on this on Luke of two years ago, I think, at this point, about what does it actually mean to follow Jesus, to not just be a cultural Christian, to not just have this faith and have it be in my head, but be in my hands and my heart, too, to actually follow Jesus. You ever ask Jesus where you're walking to with that cross? Have you ever asked? I can tell you where you're going. Here. You're walking to death. He's taking you to that grave so that you can die. But it's the empty grave we celebrate because we don't stay dead. Suffering, absolutely, friends, is the end of you. God is not interested in taking the old bits of you and just polishing them up. God is not interested in taking the broken and sinful things and just applying some OxyClean to it. God is interested in taking those old dead parts and making them new by replacing them with new. It's not just I'm going to, you know, dust up my closet in spring cleaning. It's I'm taking all the clothes out and they don't go back in. And all new clothes go in. Jesus calls for us to die. But we don't want to die. We can be honest about that. We don't want to die. That's the end. The end of our mortal life as we know it is if we die. And yes, that is part of what Jesus has in view here. But ultimately speaking, what Jesus has in view here is that this suffering that is going to lead you to die is absolutely the necessary ingredient that I need to use to get you out of the driver's seat, to give you Lasix so that you may see how I am taking us to where we need to go. Death is not the end, friends. Paul says that in our passage today, which I will read for you again knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. He says it right there. Death's not the end. And he'll bring us with you into his presence. Death is not the end, but it is necessary. It is. It's the death of what? Things like my presuppositions and my worldview, my priorities, my control, my time, talents, and money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On and on and on. It's the death of me. It is the utter and complete death of me that I may be raised to Christ in Christ to new life 
about four weeks ago, I had a moment of prayer with God where a uh, long-held dream in my life kind of came to the surface. It's a dream that I've had since I became a Christian at 15. So it's a dream I have had for 17 years of my life. I've had this dream for more than half my life. And every time this dream comes up in my life, I've always offered it back to God. Because it's a big dream. It's a big dream. And I don't want that dream to be something that is tainted with sin or to be driven by ego and pride or insecurity. If, I want, if that dream's going to come true in my life, I want it to be holy and sanctified, good for God's kingdom and God's people. But I want that dream. And so every time it came up in my life in a time of prayer, I would offer it to God and say, God, if this is from you, give it back to me and sanctify it. Give me confirmation. Speak. Show me that this is from you. And I would also pray, God, if it's not, take it away. Take it away. Take it away. A month ago, he took it away. A month ago, I had a prayer with God where God made it very clear to me in that moment, I'm closing this door. I'm not opening it again. Give that to me. Friends, there's a lot I can say about that. And there's a, there's a reason I'm giving you this example for my life. But I'll say this as an explanation of what I felt like in that moment. I went to my own funeral. I watched him lay me down in that casket and die. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. The human unsanctified Tommy would never wish that upon anybody else. But the one who knows and is knowing Jesus realizes in the months and the weeks, excuse me, that have come since then, maybe that was necessary. Now, friends, hear me. In all transparency, I, don't, I have not arrived. In some ways, in my own life and in the quiet moments, I'm still living my own funeral. Because that moment hurt a lot, more than words will testify to. But I'm learning, and I'm hoping we are learning, that it was good, that it was right, that it was true, and that it's actually what I want. Deep down, that's actually what I want, because I want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus so that others may see Jesus. That means, like John says in John 3.30, may I decrease, Lord, that you may increase. Decreasing doesn't feel good. It just doesn't. But not only is that suffering made purposeful so that others may have life, that suffering is used to transform us. Look at what Paul says just one chapter earlier from what we've read today. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Remember how I said God doesn't share his glory? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. God uses suffering to transform us into his glorious image. God doesn't share his glory. He multiplies it. That's why he can get away with saying that. God doesn't just share his glory. He's multiplying it in us. I want that glory. I need that glory. It holds me together, the very fabric of my being. And friends, whether you understand that or not, it does the same for you too. So I need to know and understand that when suffering and pain come in my way like they did a month ago, that this is something that God is using to transform me to be like him, which is something I've prayed so many times, I lost count of it. And I'm sure we have too. And this isn't the only place he says this, by the way. 
James, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count all joy when you meet trials. We don't put those two together, but he does. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. You know who the only person is that's perfect and complete? Jesus. So trials are used by God to make us perfect and complete. Huh. That's a perspective change. It's almost like James is saying, when the pain comes your way, rejoice, be happy and glad about it. Because God is answering the heart, your heart's desire. He's making you like him. What a perspective change. Because in Jesus, suffering doesn't have to undo me. It is actually the very thing he uses to make me unshakable. We believe suffering is going to un- make me shaken. And God says, suffering is what I make you, to make, use to make you unshakable. Holy Spirit math does not add up the same way our math does. And I'm glad it doesn't. Because even though this hurts, this makes sense. It makes sense. Friends, is your pain pointless or purposeful? Is it giving life in others for the glory of Jesus? Is it being used in your life to transform or not? Because otherwise, it's like the appendix. It's pointless. But then we come to our perspective needing to change on the present and the future. We say things like this. Better days are on the way. My best days are yet to come. Or my present is preparing me for my future. This is something that I have found a lot of the older generation likes to say. My best days are on their way. They said that when they were young and they were saying that as they were getting older. Holding on to what I will call a false optimism that says that the best is always yet to come. That could be true. That might not be true. There's no guarantee of that, actually. For generations around my age and a bit younger, we get really harped up on this idea that my present is preparing me for my future. We use it in different words. I put it like this up here so that all of us can understand. But for people my age and younger, we talk about the grind. The grind. I'm going to put in the work. Yeah, stay hard. (laughs) I'm going to do what is necessary to get me ready For when I have everything that I have longed for and slaved for and fought for, that I will get to enjoy for the rest of my life. We call that the grind. I'm going to fight tooth and nail so that even if this present experience sucks, the one I will have in this mortal life overall will be amazing because of how I slaved now and gave it out my blood, sweat, and tears now. We are so hopped up on the present and the future. And man, we have broken glasses. We do. Because there's a man in scripture, there's plenty of them, and plenty of women, but there's one example I can point to you this morning where better days were not on their way. And the present did absolutely prepare him for his future, but not in a, this is living my best life kind of way. And that's the Apostle John. The Apostle John, who nicknames himself the disciple that Jesus loves. So he understood something about his identity. This man walked with Jesus. I've seen miracles happen in front of me. They'd be a thousand times cooler if I saw Jesus do them in front of me. The physical Jesus. Even though Jesus says it's better that I leave, but you know, we won't get into that. The Apostle John, 
who walked around with 11 best friends and our Savior, who then saw Jesus come back to life, who had the privilege and the pleasure of writing not one, but five books of the Bible. This John had best days. Do we know how his life ends? Because it's not better. He's not thriving. He gets sequestered to an island by the Caesar in power at that time, the island of Patmos, for trying to spread the gospel, and he dies alone. Having seen all of his other friends and apostles die for their faith before him, he's the last one. Do you know how a bittersweet experience that is to be the last one? To have to go through death and death and death and death and have it not be yours? To be a man who is utterly convinced and knows and believes that that death is but a door to experience the presence of his Savior again. You don't think he longs for that? The disciple who calls himself the one whom Jesus loves does not long to be in the presence of his Savior again and he's the last one to go. He suffered, and his best days were not ahead of him. But his present at that time absolutely prepared for him a future, because we don't have John who writes the Revelation, the last book in our Bibles, without the John who experiences the Jesus of the Gospels. We don't get that John if we don't have first that other John. We don't. So yes, we can say absolutely that our present, in Paul's words, are absolutely preparing us for a future. It's just not the future you think because we are consumed with the future of our mortal lives. And Jesus says, through Paul, look past that. Look past that. There's something more. There's something greater. Do not get caught up on what is in the here and now. Because the here and now, remember, will rot, will rust. It's dying even as we have it. Friends, the change comes when we accept that our present life is not forever. What I do now what I have done, and the rest of my mortal life is not my present. I'm sorry, it is my present. It's not my future. Excuse me. It's just not. I may live 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. I've asked God to help me live to 113 years. That's a story for another day as to why I want to live to 113. But I've asked God. I'm being serious. I want to live to 113. Even those 113 years, should God grant me that much life on this earth, is nothing. It's but a breath in the history of humanity, but also in the history of my life. Because you know what comes after that day? Eternity. No end comes after that day. I start a new chapter, and I'll never finish that book, which as someone who loves to read books, sounds like a great, great time. Friends, Paul testifies to this idea that this present is but temporary. When he says in our passage that our bodies are wasting away, our bodies are wasting away. I'm a fit 32-year-old who likes to work out and I eat pretty decently. As of right now, it does not feel like my body is wasting away. But thank God that he has reduced the stubbornness in my life and given me a dose of humility because I've learned from my betters and I've learned from my elders who can testify and say, I looked like you once. <laughs> and my body is wasting away. I've met guys who can run marathons, ultra marathons at 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, putting on 100 miles on their legs. Seems like that's nuts, and it is. And even they have said, my body's wasting away. This too will come to an end, because it's temporary. The afflictions, the sufferings that we experience in this life, 
that are either pointless or purposeful. Even they end. So when we believe there will be an end to our suffering, we believe rightly it's just not in this life. Let me say that concretely. From the moment you were born to the moment you die, you will suffer. You will. But God promises us once you die, because of Jesus and in Jesus, that's exactly where it ends. That's exactly where it ends. There will just be a blink, a footnote in the book of your life because of all that comes after that. The seen things, the things that I experience, the things that I uh, enable, all that stuff, the world around me is transient. It is passing through. That's what transient means. Here today, gone tomorrow, like a tumbleweed in the wild, wild west. There it goes. And it won't come back. It's gone. Friends, we become unshakable when that change happens. We realize that this is all temporary which actually matches the value that it has if we come full circle. But we become unshakable when I realize and accept that this life won't last, but the internal glory that God is building up in me and for me will. That glory that every time we suffer and we are afflicted, we feel, ah, the sting of pain and the sting of death and the sting of sin again. Realize God on the other side of that says, I'm putting another penny in that piggy bank. Man, you can't wait to see what he has for you in store when you are ultimately in his presence again. It's an internal weight of glory. I don't know if you've ever experienced the weight of glory of the presence of Jesus Christ. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. It just brushes you, and you feel completely undone. You're in another world because you know that God is in your midst. That's our forever. That's our forever in Jesus. This can hurry up and go. Because I want that. I need that. We need that. Friends, we become the unshakable church that Jesus died for, that gave his life for, when we allow ourselves for that same God and his spirit living in us and moving in us to give us holy corrective surgery, to change how we see things from the inside out, that changes us from the inside out. Changes how we live from the inside out. Because, friends, it comes down to things like this. What do we value? And do I value Jesus above all else? Give me Jesus. Take the rest. Will my suffering that is guaranteed be pointless or purposeful? Will it be pointing me to an eternal weight that God is building up in me? Or will I just be whining and crying about it, hoping it's going to change? When God has already promised, it will change in him, but it has a point. And what is our present preparing us for? What do we actually believe the point of this life is? Is it for my good and my glory? Is it to make as big of a name? Is it just to just be like a tumbleweed and just here today, gone tomorrow? What's the point? It has a point. Jesus says, I'm that point. If you'll bow your heads with me. Jesus, we are again in awe of who you are and in awe of your love for us. Jesus, we want to be like Paul, who him himself says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we really want to be like you. And Jesus, we want to be people who 
are unshakable. That the waves and the storms of this life come and threaten to swallow us up, we can stand firm in who you are, in your truth and in your might and in your authority and in your power. And know that when everything fades, I've lost nothing of value. Lord Jesus, convict us and work in us this morning, we ask and pray, to help us to see where we are blind to this reality, that I am valuing something that is just not worth valuing. And it's actually keeping me from experiencing and treasuring the true hope and treasure that I have in you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, where we are looking at our suffering as an undue punishment, as pain that will never be insurmountable, insurmounted, as pain that I will never overcome, as pain that will be my undoing. Lord Jesus, would you and us this morning speak gently but powerfully and show us how you're using the suffering in our life that others may live, that others may live. Jesus, isn't that what you did? How can we expect anything else? You came and you died that we may have life. Why are we surprised you call us to do the same? Jesus, show us the purpose of our suffering. Give us redemption and hope. Give us a taste of that glory. That we would see that this is being headed in a holy and good direction. That there is a point to this. Give us your comfort too, Jesus. We talked about that so many weeks ago, but I asked for that in that moment too. Even as we are wrestling with you, Jesus, and asking these questions, give us your comfort as we are afflicted. Would you promise us Lord, help us see rightly this present, that reality we live in. Help us to know the future that you have called us to, that you are preparing for us. Help us to labor with eyes up towards heaven and not here, just on this earth. Lord Jesus, move in us, work in us, speak to us now. Help us to earnestly and honestly wrestle with these questions with you and should you lead us to, Lord, with each other. Help us to not let this moment go by. Help us not just be another thing that we did on a Sunday morning. Help us now, holy Jesus. We ask and pray to change our perspective. Do the surgery you need to do, oh great physician, that we may be like you. For our good, Lord Jesus, for your glory, we ask and pray.